0: Find a
1: location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile
0: banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and NA, member FDSE.
1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, I'm Howard Burton, host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to present the following Pandemic Perspectives podcast one of a special series of 24 podcasts that, together with our Pandemic Perspectives documentary and my book, Pandemic Perspectives, A Filmmaker's Journey in 10 Essays, make up our comprehensive Pandemic Perspectives project, looking at the COVID-19 crisis from a spectrum of different angles. Today's Pandemic Perspectives podcast features Imperial College Respiratory Infections researcher, John Tregoning, author of the acclaimed book, Infectious, Pathogens and How We Fight Them. Which she somehow managed to publish in the depths of the pandemic to help so many people, myself most definitely included, get a better handle on the profound challenges facing our immune system in the midst of the coronavirus crisis. Those who have been following these Pandemic Perspectives podcasts will recognize that a constant point of criticism invoked by our guests is the generally poor level of science communication demonstrated throughout the pandemic. But suffice it to say that John has done his utmost to successfully push matters in an unequivocally positive direction. I thought we'd begin at the beginning, logically enough, with your interest in not just immunology, but biology and medical science in general. You mentioned in your book that uh, you were captivated by immunology through some book that you read 25 years ago, but perhaps we can go even further back and just get a sense of your interest in the biological sciences writ large. Did you always have an interest in that? And how did that begin for you?
0: Yeah, I, I think I did. I, I always enjoyed sciences. And at school kind of between eight and 13, I had a very inspirational science teacher called Mr. Parkin. And he let us do fairly open-ended science experiments. So he, he, we'd go off and collect wood lice from the local park and then test whether they liked dark or light or kind of put them in this sort of habitat type experiment but he also kind of gave us free reign to the chemical store so we could just go and take bits of sodium and blow them up and and do all sorts of things he probably wouldn't be allowed to do now and so that was the kind of founding of it and then I guess it was a bit of like I was good at it so I carried on doing it through um, school and then into university and then I enjoyed it at university but I was kind of distracted by all the other university stuff as well so I maybe didn't focus on it quite as much I was definitely surrounded by amazing minds and didn't quite click at the time and I think some of it was you go from being the sort of top of your pool at school to then suddenly being surrounded by lots and lots of bright people and you suddenly feel quite average Uh, and I wasn't quite mature enough to cope with that but then I was lucky enough to do a PhD and I think it was during the PhD that it sort of clicked a bit more that that's the path they wanted to do. So I enjoyed it as a child, but I had no real sense of what I wanted to do until I was about third.
1: Right. And at any point, did you flirt with the idea of going to medical school? I know, obviously, you end up uh, as a a researcher and you teach medical students, as I understand now, in in immunology. But was that a career path that you had considered at some point? Uh, No, I never wanted to be a medical doctor. I'm more interested in the
0: questions at the front end than the translation at the back end. The problem solving really fascinates me rather than necessarily kind of where those problems end up.
1: So I'd like to move to Infectious now. I have a fair amount of questions regarding the book, and um, it's written obviously in a way to engage non-specialists, and it's written obviously in a way to engage non-specialists in this particularly curious time that we're living in, namely the pandemic, and you leverage that, and we'll get into that, obviously. But before we begin, you talk a little bit about your motivations for writing that, but I think it would be useful for you to give a general synopsis of what prompted you to write that and how that process unfolded.
0: Yeah, and I think it needs to rewind about six years. I do really enjoy writing, and I, I had really enjoyed writing. I used to write for the college newspaper I did a bit when I was doing my PhD and then that side of me kind of I didn't do as much for about 10 years during that time sort of the science writing enjoyed so writing the kind of research papers and and, and I, I kind of was enjoying that but I, I about six years ago I was having a bit of a kind of wobble in my research career as a fairly standard you know getting research funding is challenging and 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 all of those kind of aspects of it and I spoke to a friend and he said, well, what else do you enjoy in that? Maybe you could go back to the writing and start developing that as a kind of a side project. And so I set up a blog and started writing mostly about kind of science careers, but a bit about my research in a kind of lay perspective. So so I was kind of building up this sort of portfolio of work. And then. That sort of built up and built up, and then from the blog, I started writing for Times Higher Education and for Nature Career. so it was sort of slightly bigger, well, much bigger audiences, and developed sort of portfolio from there. And then I thought I, I actually then wanted to write a book, and it's always been something in my mind that I'd like to have done. I had an idea for a book, and I shopped it around, and nobody was really interested in it. And I was lucky enough to meet the person who became my agent, who's called Caroline, and she. Suggested a completely different book in November 2019. She said, Well, the thing you're talking about, so I was talking about like a, a science career kind of how to type book. She said, Well, it's quite niche, but how about writing a book about vaccines or antibiotics? And at the time, I didn't quite have the headspace and wasn't really interested in it. And then you roll forward six months, and then suddenly my academic lab shut down, and actually lots of people were kind of asking me questions. And I thought, Well, I am in a position to kind of communicate some of the science that people are asking about and went back to Caroline and said, yes, can we have a look at that idea and develop it further? And then she kind of helped me do the sales pitch. And then that led into the deal with One World and then that led to the book.
1: I see. Well, so it was quite propitious, really, that, that you had already been thinking about these things and developing contacts in the industry. I thought we'd move on to some questions, and I have quite a lot of them about the book, and then more general questions about uh, what's happening in the world today and what we can do about it. I hope to solve all of the world's problems by the time we end, so no pressure. (laughs) So my first question, I'm going to start on the silly side of things, because you write in a very lighthearted way, and so it seems appropriate for me to pick up on some of that. So my first question is, what have you got against North London? (laughs) you make a few cutting comments about well at least one thing I think there was something from Mill Hill and well at least that's one good thing that comes out of North London so I have known Londoners that come from south of the Thames and their view is that anything north of the Thames is toxic and should be avoided at all costs are you one of those people? (laughs) By by accident I, I grew up outside London but then I lived
0: when I moved into London I spent most of my life south of the Thames. And, and therefore, it grew that bias for anti-North London. So I think it's just a you know, parochialism. I'm sure there are things that are nice in North London. I've just not found them yet.
1: Right. But I mean, technically, obviously, it's not North London. But technically, of course, you do recognize that Imperial College is north of the Thames.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's sort of West London. I think you have North, South, East and West. So you can kind of put yourself into, into quadrants, but it's not proper North London, sort of right, angel right. arsenal type places.
1: No, 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 I appreciate that. It's just, I mean, if you use the Thames as, as, your, as your origin, as it were, then anyway. Uh, so that's, that's my flippant comment, number one. Moving to the slightly, but only ever more slightly serious aspect, you have all sorts of very interesting anecdotes and parenthetic comments sprinkled throughout the book. And one of them particularly caught my attention, but for a reason that might be somewhat unique or at least different. You give some anecdote very briefly about someone called Polly Matzinger, who co-wrote an article with her dog to circumvent the single author policy of the journal. And then I looked it up in the footnote, and the journal was the Journal of Experimental Medicine. So that's an interesting story, but it prompted the question, why on earth did a journal have a policy against single authors to begin with? what what's that all about in my world if you have a single author paper you get kudos for that rather than uh, having to circumvent it by pretending to write it with your dog or maybe her dog did all the work i mean what do i know
0: it, it's strange i don't think they have it anymore and it may not it's, it's sort of the whole she definitely did co-wrote it with a well not co-wrote it she put her dog on as a co-author well you don't know i mean <laughs> yeah, that's the truth <laughs> he may have done something I, I feel like she was probably doing most of the heavy lifting the reasons why maybe it was just like a, a grand FU type gesture and <laughs> she got caught. But then she got banned from writing from, to there for, for a long time afterwards. So I think, well, she became quite famous off the back of it. So it sort of worked in, in what it was me to do. And there's so many journals.
1: But that just seems very odd to me. I've never heard of anything like that, but I don't pretend to know how things work in the, in the biological sciences. Is that common at all? Do you know I of any other cases? I don't think so. And, not any, and certainly not now. I, I think you could very easily write a single
0: paper. I think it'd be challenging if it was a wet lab paper to actually do it. Like, I think the technical, being able to, to do everything by yourself, I think is very hard now. So I think it's more likely ruled out by, we sort of live in this age of team science, but I guess it, you could do it on like a thought piece and an opinion piece probably.
1: Right. Okay, so as we are careening ever so gently towards more substantial issues, one of the things that your book prompted me to think about and maybe this is a a stupid question, which is something that I often specialize in, but I'm going to ask it anyway, which is how is infection defined exactly? So here's, here's what I mean by that. So clearly people conflate all sorts of things. They conflate infection versus disease. And we know that there's a big distinction there. And if we weren't And by we, I mean just everyone. If we weren't sufficiently aware of that before the last two years, we're certainly aware of it now with the number of asymptomatic cases that we have with respect to COVID. And so I think everybody has some uh, understanding that you can possess all sorts of different viral loads without showing any manifesting any particular symptoms. And nobody even knows that they're sick. So there's a distinction that goes on there. So there's the basic question of well, at what point, depending on the number of let's just talk about viruses. So at what point, with the number of viruses in your system, does that qualify as an infection? And this is highlighted by something that you wrote, which confused me, or at least it it, it sort of confused me. So I have an interpretation and then I'm gonna throw it over to you to to answer. So you, you wrote, it's possible to have an infection without symptoms and develop antibodies detectable by the tests." So that's along the lines of what we just talked about with asymptomatic cases. And it's possible to have had an infection with symptoms and not develop antibodies. So my interpretation of that was, well, what's happening there is that the innate immune system is somehow has somehow squelched the disease before it even gets to the adaptive immune system and your antibodies are being produced. So my first question is, is that right? And my second question is, based upon that, it it again brings back this question of, well, at what point do you say that, yes, you're infected? Do you understand where, where I'm going with this?
0: Yeah, yeah. So, so starting on the first bit, it, there's a real heterogeneity of human responses to infection i think that to to exposure to a virus so if you um, have enough virus that's replicating in your nose say and we call that an infection then some people will make antibodies some people will make t cells some people will make nothing and i think we're with the amount of kind of screening and measuring we're seeing that that it is very variable i think you know the textbook answer two years ago would be get infection make T cells, make antibodies to everything you see. And I think someone described it as a huge human experiment of the last two years. And experiment sounds wrong, but it's a kind of a measuring study on a scale that we've not done before, because we've suddenly got all these people with a known agent that they've not seen before. And we can see the high variability. And I think, yes, I think you might have people who whose innate system controls it or whose. T cells control it without the role of the B cells, or who aren't present, who don't have the right kind of repertoire in their B cells to pick up maybe that antigen, or and the other things we're not measuring the entirety of people's responses. So it may be that they're not making antibodies against the spike protein, which is what a lot of the assays are against, but they may be against the nucleocapsid capsid or one of the other twelve proteins in the coronavirus. So, it, so there may be responses there that our assays aren't picking up, or they may not be making them. So there's a kind of huge breadth of things that we don't know. And then your broader question about what is an infection is really interesting and challenging because I think we can see now with the tools that we have for detecting, and if we just focus on viral agents, you can detect viruses that we call pathogens in children all the time. So like 20% of kids, if you went into a primary school, 20% of kids would have RNA for a known pathogen up their nose at any one time. They're not necessarily symptomatic, but they could be infectious in terms of they have enough virus that when they play with their friends at the sandpit, that they, they pass it on to the next person. So I guess, and it may not be an official definition, but my definition would be having a, an agent with the potential to cause harm that you can spread to another person. I think they sort of go back to the sort of cock posture that's kind of that kind of classic idea. You may not, be, may not need the symptoms, but you have the agent. You can take it from one person, put it in another person, and they, they'd have the same thing.
1: Right. Okay. Thank you. Another question that was prompted by your book, something that I wasn't aware of at all. I mean, there are lots of things that I'm not aware of. I don't have a biological background. Uh, I've just been, like a lot of people, I suppose, perhaps slightly more than your average person, but certainly like most people, frantically trying to learn about this world. To me, it's completely fascinating. I mean, I had a very strong sense of how come nobody told me about these things (laughs) throughout earlier parts of my life. There's so much about the immune system, which is just just remarkable, completely remarkable. And I hope to get back to that. And I'd also like to get back to what you just mentioned insofar as this last two years having been a very rigorous and broad experiment from which we can learn all sorts of things. However, I'm drifting as I tend to do. So a, a few specific points. So I knew proteins were made of amino acids, but I had a dim memory that an amino acid could be characterized or defined by a particular, you know, you have this chemical group and that chemical group and this, this other thing that varies on that chemical group, and therefore you have an amino acid. But what I wasn't aware of is that all the proteins in the human body and perhaps all sorts of life forms, maybe all life forms, I don't know, are comprised of just 20 different amino acids. And yet there are 500 amino acids or something like that, that are actually found in nature. So that prompted the question, what's going on? Why those particular 20 amino acids? And I'm not looking for an answer. I mean, if you have an answer, that would be great. I would be somewhat surprised if anyone had an answer, although I haven't had any chance to look at this, but it just, that strikes me as odd and suggestive of something. And so I was just wondering about that as I was reading the book.
0: Yeah, no, I don't know. I, it, it may be to do with bioavailability or the energetics of or, or the the size of loading them up onto tRNAs. And I think once you get down to a common language of amino acids across all species, then it it you don't benefit from being the one that uses the the other twenty because nobody else is making them for you. So, um, it it yeah, there'll be some energetics in there as well. But yeah, no, it's a it's a an interesting question, but which i'm not
1: equipped to answer this is not in the spirit of trying to you know aha you should know everything because you know (laughs) it's just i I think well that's odd and and you start thinking about these things and you you perhaps have a tendency to think well you invariably have a tendency to think more broadly about something when you don't have any previous expertise you're just coming and saying i don't know anything about this what's going on there and you're willing to ask all sorts of questions that you you might have taken on faith if you had had a more rigorous educational pathway as it were. So here's something that I've been thinking about a lot during the pandemic and I don't uh, have any answers to. I think you do a wonderful job in in your book highlighting the specificity of antibodies. And this is something that I think most people who don't have a background in this, they they miss. They've heard of the term antibody. They have a sense that an antibody is, is a good thing. You want to have it to fight infection and this sort of idea. But the idea of an antibody being incredibly finely tuned to a particular pathogen, and the degree of specificity that's involved in that is something that I think almost everybody misses. I certainly had no sense of it whatsoever. And I think you do, you do an, an exceptionally good job of highlighting that. But that in turn makes me start wondering about, well, how does that work exactly? What are the mechanisms involved in antibodies neutralizing pathogens. And then I started reading more and I talked to a guy who's a researcher in HIV vaccines, and he starts talking about these broadly neutralizing antibodies, which seems to be at some level, almost a contradiction in terms if you you assume that, that things are so incredibly specific. Okay, so I should end with a question, which I understand is what you're supposed to do when you're interviewing somebody. But let's just take this notion of a broadly neutralizing antibody. To what extent is that coherent? Can you alleviate some aspect of my confusion? And maybe talk a little bit about the specifics of the mechanics of that, because at some point in your book you also talk about it's not just that it it's targeted towards one protein, or or at least it's not always targeted towards one protein, but you even mentioned some micro bits of amino acids of a protein, something like 10 or 20 amino acids that these particular antibodies are so incredibly finely tuned towards.
0: Yeah. So if we stepping kind of quite far back. If we took all of your blood out of your body and measured all of the unique B cells, you have 10 to the 15 different unique B cells. So you have this huge diversity, and the diversity is made by a sort of gene rearrangement. You basically have in the B cell gene, or the genes that determine B cells, you have a kind of a Lego box. When they're making the cells in the bone marrow, they pick, you have basically three buckets of bucket one, bucket two, bucket three called V, D, and J. And you pick one brick from V one from d and one from j and then you stick them together slightly messily and that gives you that kind of enormous diversity so so you have all these different b cells that theoretically could recognize a pathogen in the future and most of them will just sit quiescent will never kind of see their pathogen because a lot of them kind of never see that kind of agent if you then see the thing that your b cell recognizes so say you've got a b cell in your body that recognizes the it's called the receptor binding domain. It's the bit on the end of the spike protein that helps the virus get into the cell. So if you've got a receptor binding domain recognizing antibody making B cell, if that sees the spike protein, that population expands in numbers. So you get lots more of those B cells and that's what makes you have the antibody. But that antibody will only recognize that one region of the SARS spike protein. And if the SARS spike protein then changes that one region and it needs to be quite big changes. So there are changes that it could make. So it could change its receptor binding domain. So the easiest way to think about it is you get some amino acids that have a negative charge and some amino acids have a positive charge. If it changes from strongly positive to strongly negative, it might repel the antibody. Like if you put two two similar, if you've got a a negative antibody that binds a positive spike protein, if you suddenly turn to a positive spike protein, like two magnets together, the, the things will repel, so it won't bind anymore. But if the virus changes its protein structure that much, it may be that the original function of the protein to get into the cells is also broken at the same time. So there's a kind of a space the virus can live in, and there's a space the antibodies live in so they can talk to each other. So that's, kind of where the specificity comes from. The broadly neutralizing antibodies are broadly neutralizing across multiple strains of the same virus. So so we're now talking about antibodies against HIV. And the challenge with HIV is that it's a very variable virus. So there are more strains of HIV circulating in one person than there are of SARS coronavirus in the whole world, so there's huge variety in that. And the HIV virus uses a protein called the envelope protein to get into cells. So it's a similar approach to SARS spike, but it's just it's a called a different thing. What the ideal vaccine would do would be to recognise all of the possible envelope glycoproteins available out there in the world. And there are some regions in the envelope glycoprotein that are by force, conserve the virus has to use the same kind of tool set, sort of like kind of kit of sequences, because otherwise it can't get into the T cells, so it can't infect cells. So, so if you have an antibody that recognizes this kind of key domain, then you can kill, you can potentially kill all of the viruses. The challenge with that is that bit of the virus, that conserved bit of the virus that that you want to target with your broadly neutralizing antibody is beginning to look a little bit like a human protein and your body removes a lot of the antibodies that recognize human proteins to stop autoimmunity so the, the viruses evolve to mimic human proteins and so you get into this kind of difficult space and that's why very few people make these broadly neutralizing antibodies because they are drifting into being autoantibodies and, and kind of you might start attacking yourself at the same time so it's kind of a, there's an evolutionary challenge in there.
1: Okay. Like all things in your field, it seems it's vastly more complicated than you first think. But let's put that aside for the moment, because here's my conceptual problem. The idea of something that's incredibly finely tuned so that it can be successful against a short string of amino acids, say, seems to be inherently contradictory with the idea of something rapidly evolving. So what it seems like you were saying to me is that notwithstanding all of the rapidly evolving or at least evolving many different strains of HIV in this particular case, they all have something in common, namely this envelope or whatever it is, the protein on the envelope against which one can mount an attack. And so the goal is, well, let's target that commonality and find something which can hit all of these different variants. And then the problem, as you were saying, is that you've got all these other, other problems like you always do. but. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, that, that conceptually seems a bit odd to me. If you have something that's varying, but it's, at the same time it's got this kernel of, of something which is staying the same and opening it up to a susceptible attack. So that seems odd to me. Do you understand my confusion?
0: Yeah, I, I think if it's coming from the host side, the reason for why the specificity is because the adaptive immune system is quite dangerous to you, so it, it can cause either kind of side damage, you know, inflammation. Or autoimmune condition starts attacking itself so it is very very tightly controlled to stop it attacking everything and that kind of specificity is part of that it will focus only on the kind of on the pathogen side of things the innate system is a bit more broad and is recognized as like viral RNA or lipopolys like chemicals that only bacteria make so there is a kind of much more broad system from which the kind of pathogens can't escape in terms of in that kind of virus and host evolution, we do see it, and I think we see it better in the way the T cells and HIV interact. So T cells are, um, there's a, a family of T cells with white blood cells, which are called the CD8 cells, and they kill infected, virally infected cells. With HIV, the, basically the virus gets into the cell, the infected cell then flags on its surface that it's infected, and it shows a kind of bit of the virus on the outside on this, the, these MHC molecules the bit of the virus that it's showing, the T cells recognize and kill. But viruses that don't show that particular kind of sequence of amino acids and they change it, then don't get killed by the CD8. So they, they then kind of become the dominant population. And you get these rolling waves where the T cells kill most of the infected cells, a new clone of the virus escapes that then reinfects more cells than the, the CD8s come in and kill those. Eventually, the virus hits on a solution through which it can infect other cells and not be seen by the CD8 cells. So the reason why the virus evolves within people is because the CD8s are killing most of them and the virus is escaping all the time. And eventually it hits on this kind of perfect solution for the virus, which can get away from the CD8 cells and yet infect other cells. And that's normally when people tip in untreated from HIV into AIDS because their immune system can no longer cope and and see the virus. So there are yes, the virus has to kind of stick to this kind of kernel of infectivity, but there are more solutions in the virus than there are ability to see it in the immune system.
1: Okay. Thank you. I have lots more questions, but I'm going to try to cut some of them short because uh, we don't have enough time to cover all of them. I want to just maybe make a a parallel note into the mRNA vaccines, because that's another thing that everybody's talking about. And here's my sense of this moment in time and why I think it's significant, so I know that the concept of mRNA vaccines have been around for a very, very long time. I know that people have been thinking about them for, for cancer, and they've been thinking about them for all sorts of things for, for a long time. But I think the idea of a successful mRNA vaccine is transformative, so I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to hold forth on why I think this is an interesting moment in time, and then you tell me whether I'm right or whether I'm wrong. So my sense is that unlike all previous vaccines that uh, were designed to directly trigger uh, an immune response by subjecting the immune system to harmless, let's say, or at least not terribly harmful copies of the pathogen, what these vaccines represent is an opportunity to directly harness cellular machinery by information that you're giving to them so you're really harnessing the basic mechanisms of how cells make proteins rather than throwing something at the immune system and saying recognize this you're proactively using this notion of harnessing the information and capitalizing on the internal cellular mechanisms directly is that a fair summation
0: yes and then but you're still saying to the immune system now recognize this sure it's just the this is being made in the cells of the body rather than being injected into them so you're kind of it shifts where the manufacturing process is in a way
1: right so i want to comment a little bit about the book and i want to comment on the the impact and the sociological aspects because i think they're extremely important and they obviously are things that you take very seriously as well you should given not only your professional life, but also the fact that you're a human being, like all the rest of us living in this time, and and you had some very, I think, very insightful and important personal touches in the book itself. So I want to get to this idea of trust. The first thing I should say is that I was surprised by the lack of books such as the one that you have written. I would have thought that there would be far more readily available information for a broad general audience of how vaccines work, and what we're doing, that's not in a simplistic two-minute YouTube video, not that there's anything wrong with that particularly, but that would that would be much more comprehensive. And I was I was a little bit shocked by that, quite frankly. So I think it's wonderful what you've done, and I think you've done a very comprehensive job at being able to explain those things in an accessible way for people. But I was struck as I was reading the book, if you compare the sorts of information that you're giving in this book which is again all too rare with other popular science there seems to be a real distinction in physics which is an area where i'm more familiar there's a focus on what we don't know there's dark energy we don't know what the heck that is there's dark matter we don't know what that is there's the cosmological constant problem gosh who can figure that out the origin of the universe we're not sure exactly is cosmic inflation right is it wrong is you know all this kind of stuff there's always this focus on what we don't know sometimes too much so. And of course, in order to fully comprehend what we don't know, you have to understand what we do know. And that's often where popular science, I think, sensationalizes and lets people down because you have to do a lot of slogging to be able to get there. But the focus is, is always on what we don't know at some level, even within the field. When I talk to biologists, the focus seems to be always on what we do know. It's like, look at us. We know this. You know, Vaccines have done this. They're amazing. And so My point is not that we don't know a whole lot about vaccines or or that we haven't made just remarkable strides in understanding the almost inconceivable complexity of the human body in the last hundred years. That's obviously true and it should be celebrated, but I'm getting almost a defensive thing when I talk to biologists, when I ask them, well, what about this? What about that? Let's talk about what we actually don't know. And I'm wondering if part of that, my interpretation of defensiveness is the overwhelming relevance of this. Part of it is this idea that if biologists admit or talk about or focus on what they don't know, then they're worried that the public will, you know, the anti-vaxxers will go, oh, these guys don't know what the heck they're talking about. They're admitting that they don't know and so forth. Do you think that that's a So this was a very long question, I appreciate. Do you, do you think that that's a fact? First of all, do you think that that's a thing? Am I misreading the situation? Is there something there? And if so, do you think my attributed justification for it holds any water?
0: I hadn't thought about it before, but now that you say, it, yes, in the way that we outwardly present, I think we do tend to talk about knowns rather than the unknowns. I think maybe we, when we sit down together, we, we'll talk about the, the, the unknowns, or you know, if we're, and it may be a kind of you know, it may be that, and maybe that you you kind of you keep your unknown questions to yourself because you don't want somebody else to go, oh yeah, oh I haven't <laughs> thought about that either. I'll go and write the grant. You're like, damn it, I was going to ask that question. So I think there is a, yeah, that's really interesting. And I think there probably is a difference in the way we kind of approach the way we present our information. And it maybe is the immediacy and the relevance. You know, I, if I admit that we don't know about how black holes form, it's not gonna, people are not gonna change their, their trip to Tesco. Exactly. But if we say, well, we think it works like this. And I think that's probably, it is a bad thing. I think we do need to be clear that science is messy. and And, you know, the, the, we had went just lived through the follow the scientists, but there isn't a scientist. There's, you know, we all have different opinions. It's really challenging because you, it's almost like there needs to be, there needs to be a core public health message, which should be put across. It, and it's very hard then to have other people kind of saying, well, we're not quite sure about this. We may not agree with like the central tenets of it, but as soon as you start disagreeing, then there'll be like prominent scientist X from... Prominent university, why disagrees? So therefore, I shouldn't wear my seatbelt, or I should. I, I it's okay if I start smoking. And I, I don't know if it then opens us up to problems in the future, where you know we then do. To, you know, everyone's like, oh, what about thalidomide? Or you know, what about people who used to say smoking was good? There's there's lots of stuff where thoughts change, and that's normal in science. And it may be we need better. It's not that you need better science education about the facts of science. It's the thought process that matters more importantly, Absolutely. and I think we're hoping to move towards that at least at university level where we now accept that you have the knowledge of the world in your phone, so there's no point in teaching people, well, go and learn the Krebs cycle, go and learn all twenty amino acids in their structure because you'll never need that information in your head because you can just you can you can type it on something that you, you're never going to be that far away from something, so it's much more important to think about. Well, how do I think critically about science? How do I integrate data? How do I work in a team? So the, and then maybe if that could filter down into more broader education, then you can start having this conversation. And say, well, this is what we don't know. These are the boundaries, and 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 you're right. There are lots of questions that I probably should have
1: put in of the kind of unknowns and the, like, what are the challenges it wasn't meant to be a criticism but i mean i know it came out that way but that's not what i meant no 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 and i didn't read
0: it like i just had i hadn't thought about it and i'll I'll admit the writing was like six months of just get the information from my head onto the computer so there was a structure but it was like and just go so probably the time to have thought about it would have been you
1: know february 2020 and i it was just this this different in the process but well, but I think I think it's more than that. I mean, the book is obviously written. It's crazy for me to be arguing with you about this because you wrote the book and it was all in your mind. But nonetheless, as an objective observer, this book is written not just implicitly, but explicitly in the shadow of COVID-19. And people are confused and they're anxious and they're worried and they're looking for guidance and they're looking for understanding. And that's the that's the dominant factor in the equation and we all we all know that and we all appreciate that and that's why everybody myself very much included is all of a sudden googling and reading books and reading articles about the immune system which is something that I wasn't doing two years ago I mean that that has to be understood and not everybody has the time to be able to go into this but there is something there that I find frustrating and I just want to reiterate what you said about the process of science and it's almost as if I get the sense that the biomedical community when I hear this is is a bit insecure. They're saying things like, we're worried that people will say, "Wow, smoking was good for you one day, or, or you've made mistakes with things like thalidomide, or all these things that you've mentioned. Of course, when you're an expert, it doesn't mean that you're God. It means that you have the, the best understanding of the circumstances available. And it also doesn't mean that if you're an expert, you're not going to disagree with another expert, either on a small level or on a large level or anything like that. But you have to make decisions and you have to make decisions, not just scientifically, but in terms of public policy, based upon a responsible weighing of the current state of knowledge as you determine it objectively. And that's why expressions like, so there are two things about this that always irritate me when people talk about these things in the public domain. And one of them is this expression, trust the science. So that drives me round the bend, because that makes it sound like a faith. And I think what we're talking about is trust the process, as you were saying before, But that's, to me, almost indistinguishable from trust rationality, because that process isn't a process which is, in my judgment anyway, particular to science. It's a similar process that you use when you talk about history, or when you talk about political theory, or when you talk about anything. It's not singular or unique to science. It's just rational principles based upon gathering this whole idea of evidence-based research, which strikes me as one of the biggest redundancies imaginable. I mean... Is there non evidence based research? Right. So, I mean, there, so there's the trust the science thing. Then there's another point which you also allude to, and you allude to it rightly because this is what people are saying. So, you have to mention it. People are saying trust the science, and they're also saying it's so hard to distinguish between good and bad information these days. And I think, really? It's not hard to distinguish. I, I don't find it hard at all. So, maybe you can help me. I think that. If this pandemic had happened 15 years ago or 20 years ago, say, it would have been a heck of a lot harder for me to get a sense of what's actually going on than it does now. I can go to the CDC website. I can go to the Mayo Clinic website. I can, I can go to you know the Imperial College website. I can, I can learn about these things. I can get a, a sense of what the prevailing views of the community are. I don't find it. I find it incredibly easy to be able to get a sense of what's reasonable information and what's not reasonable information. What's that all about? I don't I don't get that. I think but you may at
0: least have the kind of tool set of knowing the places to trust. So if you if there was something that sounded like the Institute of Rational Science, or, you know, that if you're outside the community the field completely, outside science completely, you may think, well, they sound as good as Imperial College. And some of the people who've kind of peddled some of the most nonsense are oh, university associated and I think that's where the, that may be challenging if, if you're not within the field I don't know I don't I, don't, I, I agree I, I think you know look in the right places don't look in like weird spurious places or your you know cousin's Facebook page yeah I, I don't know where that sort of failure's come and I don't think I mean I think it's noisy but not common I think most you know we talk about anti-vax versus vaccine hesitant. There's a very small number of anti, true anti, unconvertible, unrepentant anti-vax. Most people are hesitant, and some of that is is comes down to logistics or time. You know, if you look at why are undergraduate students not getting vaccinated, it's because they've not registered at a GP, because they're too busy. You know, and and they've moved three times in three years. And right. so I think there's life things that get in the way as much, and to then kind of tar those people with like, oh, you're you're this bad thing is counterproductive. And I think that then leads into like I uh, I'm really opposed to vaccine mandates, for example. I think they are ultimately going to be self-defeating and will be harmful for for the next thing that we need to have, you know, people to buy in for. So uh, sort of heavy-handed approaches are, are problematic. I think it indicates a failure of education and information if we can't persuade people to do this thing that's good for them and for their community. But and then the other bit about the rationality is really interesting. I've I've been following like history podcasts. And their process is, like you say, it's really similar. It's like, it, it, just, it just faces in the opposite direction. So science, you're facing forward and saying, these are the questions we don't know. History, you're, this one's about the Second World War. And they're like, well, we don't know how the German army trained. It's like, well, let only 60 years. How is that, how's that? It's like inconceivable that there's these mysteries so recently. So I, it's really, yeah, I think it isn't just follow the science. It's like, have a rational process about how you weigh up evidence.
1: Yeah.
0: And maybe that's what people need to be taught more of.
1: Let me move to another question, something which has puzzled me. So in your book, occasionally there's mention of the Russian vaccine, the Sputnik vaccine and the the Chinese vaccine. As a lay person who's trying to navigate my way through this, I was frustrated by the fact that there seemed to be very little information about these vaccines. And it was really odd. It, it, It fractured on nationalistic lines, which... Okay, to some extent is understandable, especially given the, the politics of Russia and the politics of China, and that these are not countries that are the most forthcoming and the most open with respect to their information policies. But that being said, there are also countries where there is biomedical expertise, where they have lots of people who have a great deal of knowledge. They're procuring vaccines. They're inoculating millions and millions of people with these vaccines. And I don't get any information whatsoever about how effective they are or to what extent they're similar or different than the vaccines that I'm familiar with. So there's this weird situation where you have a global issue and then a core aspect of medical treatment to that global issue is divided on nationalistic and and geopolitical lines, which strikes me as very, very odd. What was your response to this? Did you have similar frustrations? And uh, am I missing something somewhere? Was there all sorts of analysis about how these vaccines compare to other vaccines? And I just didn't get it. But what's the situation there?
0: So I, 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 the last time I did a sort of deep dive to look for efficacy data was about was June, July 2021. And it was very hard to find any efficacy phase three, like proper clinical trial data about The particularly the Chinese inactivated vaccines. I think there is some phase three for the Sputnik V vaccine. I think it's been published, but I can't remember. But no, I agree. It was very difficult to find information about the efficacy and the effectiveness of the vaccines. And that is unusual for something that has then been deployed so widely to not have the the, the data must exist somewhere. And I think the, the clinical trials were registered. So, I, I don't know. And it, 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 it may have changed. I haven't looked in depth recently, but it was, it was difficult to access data about them.
1: Yes. Two more questions, if I may. We touched on this a little bit earlier, but I was wondering to what extent you think the pandemic, and particularly living for two years through what we've all been living through, will have direct implications on interests and, and hearts and minds, if you will, of young people who are going into or who might be more inclined to go into the biological sciences now than they would have been had something of this scale and magnitude not actually occurred. What sort of impact do you think the pandemic might have on triggering people's young people's interest in the biological sciences? And how might we be able to harness that by improving the way we're teaching biology in schools?
0: Yeah, that's... Interesting. I I was, uh, I was gave a presentation at a school yesterday, more about kind of science careers, and it was largely people who wanted to do medicine rather than science. So it was maybe slightly different. I think they are very aware. That, I mean, they asked some quite astute questions about changing patterns of behavior around the coronavirus. I think living through something probably will spark more interest in it than maybe if it hadn't happened. So hopefully there'll be somebody who's kind of read these things and will be like, well, yeah, that's the thing I want to do. Or at least raise the awareness that you can, that scientist is a job. I think one of the challenges we have is that people have heard of being a doctor. So if you're clever and you like biology, you become a you become a medical doctor rather than becoming a biomedical researcher. So maybe just knowing that there are people who do kind of science as a job will open it up to a more broad, diverse range of people, hopefully.
1: Yeah. You You make a distinction between medicine and biomedical research. And clearly that distinction exists, and yet it's a slippery slope, as it were. It's a a rather fuzzy line between the two of them. And to that point, my final question is, throughout your book, there's a strong personal aspect that comes to the fore. You mentioned the formative experience for you was when your son was hospitalized with RSV, which you had been working on and continued to work on to a very large extent. And what that meant for you. You also reveal at the end of your book that you actually came down with COVID and the added perspective that that might have given you. To what extent do you think that personally being exposed to illness changes the outlook of biomedical researchers in general?
0: I don't know, actually. I'm quite detached from the subject. And so I think pro- most of the time I think of it as a quite an abstract, me personally, it's quite like abstract problem solving. Right. I think there are other people who are more translationally or have a link because of a close relative with a certain condition. Or I think there, I think there's just it's such a broad church that people's motivations are are different in different ways. And I think coming back to that kind of comparison of medicine versus science, I think it's some of it's down to training, like the, the way you come out of a undergraduate science degree is different to how you come out of undergraduate medicine. And you may kind of converge later on if you both do research you know if you're if you're a medically trained researcher or a scientifically trained researcher you kind of get to the same place but that's kind of 10 years down the track but there is a different thought process i find between medically trained people and scientifically trained people
1: yeah i mean from personal experience things might have changed a little bit since when i was in high school um But I'm not convinced of that because I saw something very similar with my children when they went through high school. And there was this understanding or this idiom that in biology, biology requires a lot of memorization, a lot of rote memorization. That was the idiom. That was the approach. That was the understanding. And that even led to a certain level of hierarchy at least in my high school, when I was younger, and this was you know a long time ago, this was 40 years ago or whatever when I was in, in high school. But again, I'm not entirely certain that's changed, which is to say that if you were of a scientific disposition or if you were said to be of a scientific disposition and orientation, and you were good at memorizing or you were motivated to memorize or you, were taught, you, were, you somehow had a tolerance for memorization, then you did biology. And if you were of a different persuasion, then you did physics. And so I had, uh, uh, as you know, I went off into physics, and it wasn't so much that I was terrible at memorizing. I was just incredibly lazy, and I didn't want to memorize anything, and I thought it was rather pointless. But what's infuriating to me is that's just so wrong. It's, It's so wrong in so many ways, and it took me years, decades, to appreciate how wrong that was. Not that memorization is the greatest thing to be doing, but that's not part of what biological research really should be all about and that was something that really drove me crazy that that there was this there's this label that's attached to people oh well you know if you want to do biology then you have to be memorizing things and maybe that's where the the medicine biological divide or at least one aspect of that falls into play because if i go to my doctor I want my doctor to be able to say something like, oh, you have this or that condition, or the chances are that you need this particular treatment or that particular treatment. I don't want my doctor to say, well, hold on a minute, I'm going to look that up, and (laughs) that's that's reasonable. I want to have a certain sense of that. But in terms of the wonders of the biological world, I've long thought that, and really understanding the processes and, and doing research, I've long thought that far too much attention was paid towards naming things, knowing what the name of something is, taxonomy, as opposed to understanding the basic principles and recognizing the issues that are at play. And in keeping with what we had said earlier, recognizing what we don't know, recognizing the mysteries that are out there. And to my mind, it's, of course, every bit as analytical and every bit as principle-driven or at least should be as physics. There really isn't a distinction between them in matters of process. Of course there is in terms of the subject, but that's I think a really significant sociological fault line. So you have all these people, uh, my generation, but also I think subsequent generations that say, well, I really like problem solving. I really like a first principles approach to things. But clearly, biology is not the thing I should be doing, because that's just all about memorizing. So I'll go off into physics. And then you have a glut of all these people, you know, looking at the, the first you know, few microseconds of the universe or something like that. Not to say that that's a bad thing, but I, I wonder if biological research is not at a massive level really selling itself short. Mm. No, I, uh, you're right. I the, You know, the... It's single
0: cell is astoundingly complex. You sort of think of it as like a bubble diagram, like a fried egg with it with a nucleus and then some uh, blank stuff and then cell membrane. But it's absolutely packed with proteins and and structures and scaffolds and lipid bubbles and and water and hydrophilic. And it just like how anything happens in there is it bewildering. I mean, you can't you know you can't imagine it. So the the complexity in that is as complex as you know the start of the universe. And and so we should be applying that kind of level of thinking to it i went to a talk the other day and it just added another layer on top of something else i was just like oh goodness this, <laughs> like, you like know, and sometimes you have to step back and say actually i don't need to know that to solve the problem i'm interested in asking
1: sure
0: what we're trying to do educationally at imperial is move away from the knowledge system because you know like you say all of the knowledge in the world is in your mobile phone you don't need to memorize the krebs cycle anymore and I was, I was thinking you know, with your, your, you know, the doctor you know, telling you stuff, if, if he stopped for a second and just said, oh, I'll just, I'll just type the symptoms into this app, you'd probably feel more, I, I don't, you would feel less confident, but actually it's probably better if he's checking rather than just deciding what he thinks based on what he's seen before. So we are moving towards hopefully training people to think critically and how to access data rather than memorizing data unfortunately, the UK educational system at the moment has gone backwards and has gone much more into just memorize data and burp it onto a page. And that is not helpful. It only supports a certain type of person who then will go off and do a certain type of thing. So it doesn't add to diversity. And I think we do need a overhaul of the school exam system to bring it into line with the universities which are then brought into, into line with what people need in the world of work and they're slightly out of kilter at the moment and so i think yeah i think there is then this thing with biology where it is seen as i think because you can see what's happening you know physics you get into the imaginary quite quickly yeah. whereas biology you can carry on seeing the experiment so it's it sometimes maybe perceived as a softer or a different and, and uh, you, like you say, yeah, the exams, are different. You, you do more writing in the biology exam than you do in a chemistry exam. So there's just, yeah, it's pre-selecting in maybe an unhelpful way.
1: Well, I've really enjoyed talking to you, John. Is there anything that you would like to add, uh, something that we haven't talked about enough or that you'd like to emphasize or something that perhaps we've elided?
0: I don't think so. No, it's been a lot of fun. It's covered lots of things I hadn't thought about in, in, in that way. So it's been really interesting. Thank you.
1: I hope you enjoyed this Pandemic Perspectives podcast. Once again, our Pandemic Perspectives documentary, released in early March 2022, is available for rent or purchase through the Ideas Roadshow app. While the accompanying book, Pandemic Perspectives A Filmmaker's Journey and 10 Essays, is available in print and ebook through all major book distributors and an audiobook on the Ideas Roadshow app. See ideasroadshow.com for more details.